Do you feel close to her or not? No. Do you feel close to your children? No. Do you feel close to anyone? No. Are you able to tell his honour what you are like as a father to your children? I feel that I can't be a father to my children because I haven't got the skills. Justice Gray wonders how well rehearsed this answer was before the performance. He does not doubt its sincerity, but it is out of character for Bruce, relatively prolets compared to his earlier answers. Nevertheless, again, Burnside has adduced a telling piece of testimony. What sort of things do you do with them or have you done with them in the past as a father? Have you taken them on holidays or picnics? No. Did you ever play with them when they were little kids? No. Have you ever hugged them or cuddled them when they were little kids? No. Why? Just haven't felt close. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Pip Leeson. I'm speaking with author, legal academic and politician, Dr. Tony Booty. All the way from Western Australia, Tony, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, Lovely to be with you. On Christmas Day in 1957, Gadden Jerry man Joe Trevorrow admitted his 13-month-old son, Bruce, to Adelaide Hospital with gastroenteritis. Within days, Bruce was living with another family, and Joe would never see his son again. In his new book, A Stolen Life, The Bruce Trevorrow Case, Tony meticulously and empathetically chronicles the story of Australia's first and only successful stolen generations claimant, the irreversible anguish of a broken family and a 13-year battle for justice. Tony, to start out, can you tell us a bit more about how you came by this case? Yeah, so look, um, I was, as you mentioned, I was a legal academic, but prior to that I used to work at the Aboriginal Legal Service of Western Australia. I think I joined them in about 1994. And on my first day there, I uh, was given this uh, file with one sheet of paper that just had a bit of a history of it, and an Aboriginal man who'd been removed from his family and was being, uh, was, had been raised on a mission. Anyway, I didn't know what to do with this file. I had no idea of the, um, of the practice, the previous practice of governments of removing Aboriginal children in a systematic way. So the boss of the Aboriginal Legal Service at the time was uh, Robert Riley, and he was, he was also removed, and he came and saw me and said, look, we need to do a project. And as a result of that, we ended up interviewing about 500 people in just under two years and made submissions to the National Inquiry into the uh, separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families. So I had, of course, a professional interest and then an academic interest. And um, we had also been looking at trying to take uh, the state of West Australia on, uh, on behalf of our clients, and it was proving very difficult in a legal sense. And there had been some cases... Uh, in Australia, even high court case, all been unsuccessful. So it was, there was no doubt that being uh, uh, the, the success rate was uh, was demonstrably uh, bad in, in trying to uh, win a case for the stolen generation against uh, the various state jurisdictions. So of course, when the Trevara case uh, was decided, uh, the judgment was handed down the first of August two thousand and eight. Uh, sorry, two thousand and seven. <clears throat> I, um, of course, was very interested in, in the case, could have received 
quite a bit of press coverage. So I sat down and read the judgment, which was a be- beautifully crafted judgment by, by Justice Gray. And I wrote an academic article that appeared in, in a law journal. And um, then I thought, you know, this case is very significant and I really want to bring the case and the life of Bruce Trevorrow to, to a wider audience, not just a legal uh, academy. So uh, that was really the, the basis of, uh, you know, the motivation behind uh, taking this story further. Mm. Well, uh, on that note... Um Bruce died in 2008 at just 51. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about him and, and his life? Yeah. So he was 13 months old on Christmas Day, as you mentioned, 1957, when he was um, uh, he had stomach upsets. He was uh, His mother and father at that particular stage had separated. It wasn't a permanent separation, but he was with his father, and his father walked uh, the one mile from the camp where they were living into the uh, town of Miniji in the Kuron region of South Australia, uh, made famous by uh, the film Storm Boy, and um, asked for the police officer to find an ambulance to take uh, his son, Bruce, to hospital. Uh, no ambulance could be found. He uh, then went to a relative who then drove Bruce into uh, Adelaide, to the Adelaide Children's Hospital. And then um, on the 6th of January, uh, Bruce was fostered out to a a white family, a non-Indigenous family, without uh, the consent or knowledge of his parents, who actually lied to. Uh, There's a a famous um, letter that was used in in the court proceedings written by the the authorities. So basically, uh, Bruce's mother, Thora, had was trying to find out where her son will be coming home and the um, and the letter in reply said he's not well enough the doctors are saying he's not well enough to come home at this stage which was an absolute lie because by that stage he was living with a, a foster family in the suburbs of, uh, of Adelaide so that was the beginning and he he, he was raised by this foster family uh, to the age of 10 and didn't know he was Aboriginal to he was about eight and a half when he was told by his foster sister then he did get to meet his uh, biological mother, Thora, and his three older siblings when he was about nine, just after, uh, yeah, around nine uh, in, in Adelaide. Then uh, on the summer holidays, he was sent down to stay with Thora for two weeks, went back to his foster uh, parents. Uh, then without being warned or told that he was actually being removed permanently back to his biological mother, uh, at the age of 10, he was sent down to live with his biological mother on a permanent basis. Wasn't able to say a proper goodbye to his foster mother, who'd raised him to that age. And uh, he found it very difficult to cope in now what was a foreign environment for him with his, uh, with his biological family. And then for the next eight, nine years, it was a history of institutions and uh, also petty crime and uh, the commencement of uh, abuse abuse of alcohol and other substances. He then travelled a bit around Australia, ended up eventually in Victoria, married, lived in Victoria, tried to come back to uh, his home uh, country around Meniji, uh, tried to reconnect with his family and culture, could never do it. And then finally, uh, in the 90s, after the Mabo decision, um, he walked into the... Uh, solicitor was working for the South Australian Aboriginal Legal Service, which is called the Abor- Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement. And um, he um, talked about his case, whether there might be something he could do. And from there, we started the 13-year process, which finally led to the uh, successful judgment. 
It, it's a harrowing, harrowing upbringing and, um, and a, a quite a tragic life that it seems like he, he led in the most part. Um, his case stands out in amongst you know, tens of thousands of, of other children who mm. were also forcibly removed from their homes and families. How is it that Bruce uh, has been the only successful claimant against the government? Yeah, well, there, there's a number of reasons. Factually, his case was, was very, very strong, and that's for a number of reasons. There was documentary evidence that um, he, the, the, his parents were lied to, there was also legal opinion uh, that was able to be submitted in, in court, which, which clearly showed that the authorities at the time had legal opinion from the state solicitor stating that the only way Aboriginal children could be removed from their families was either by the consent of their parents and or a court order, which neither was that, that didn't happen in this case. So they knew what they were doing was unlawful. So that's number one. Number two, uh, Bruce presented as a very damaged witness. Uh, he was very damaged, he, he, and, and, and he presented as a witness in the stand, as a, a very reliable witness um, who looked very broken. And thirdly is the fact that his siblings, his three, uh, two brothers and uh, one elder sister, who were not removed and grew up with their parents and uh, in, a, in an Aboriginal environment, and cl- a close connection to their culture. While they had, uh, you know, their own difficulties in life, they were able to work through that because of their family bonding and their cultural connections, and they became pillars of the Aboriginal community, and even one of them ended up uh, going on an overseas lecture circuit and even lectured at uh, Harvard. So they were kind of like a control group, not removed, were able to work through any difficulties. Bruce was removed from his family and culture and he couldn't cope with the, uh, the challenges of life. So there were those factual scenarios. And then when it comes to the legal issues, you had a judge that was prepared to um, listen to the arguments, listen to the legal uh, cases being presented and, and, uh, and, and write a balanced judgment where I have to say in some of the other cases, not, not all of the other cases that were not successful, uh, you do have to wonder if the judge had made up his mind before he had heard the evidence. Uh, and, I, and also, it was just the, the there was a, a different, it was just a different read of the historical uh, facts in this case, and uh, where in other, some other cases the historical facts have always been read in a, in a negative manner against the uh, litigant, uh, which is a stolen generation member. Hmm. With this, can you tell us what uh, making a successful claim might have meant for Bruce and his family? Mm-hmm. Well, he after the successful decision, he felt relief and he felt that finally someone believed him and someone cared. And he actually asked uh, Julian Burnside to write a letter to the judge to thank him very much for listening to his story and recognising his, uh, you know, the plight that uh, and the suffering that he had uh, under, under, undertaken as a result of that life journey. So, in that a- aspect, there was a personal um, personal satisfaction, but it didn't. He was still a broken man, and um, th- there was a monetary uh, compensation award of five hundred twenty-five thousand uh, dollars, and uh, that, of course, was of some assistance to the family. And then, when he went, when he returned back to country Victoria, he kind of became a bit of a local hero to the uh, young Aboriginal people in the town. 
and um, so it meant I think a personal a, a personal recognition of what he had been through, and of course there would have been um, of course some financial uh, relief for his family. Mm. Well, on a broader scale, what do you think the ramifications of this particular outcome were for broader mm. Australia? Mm. Yeah, look, that, that's interesting. So this decision was handed down 1st of August 2007, and then in in February 2008 we had the uh, uh, parliamentary apology by Kevin Rudd, which was his first act as Prime Minister in Parliament, and Bruce was there in Parliament for that event. You know, that, that, that was a very significant event in, in, in the Australian parliamentary history, I would have thought, and for the nation as a whole. So I think what this case did was that it, provided finally a, a legal recognition that there were people like Bruce in our history, and that is that were treated by the authorities in a way that uh, we would not have expected. And there's always been a debate about, you know, whether we should call a stolen generation or shouldn't we call a stolen generation, depending on how a person was removed. And, and, and that's a fair enough argument. But the, in this case, there's no doubt that Bruce Travaux was stolen from his family. And it's, it, it is difficult or very doubtful that he would have been the only person ever removed in such circumstances. So I think it provides uh, verification that there were people that were stolen. Not everyone. Sometimes people were taken to missions uh, with the consent of the family, whether it was informed consent, that's another issue. Uh, but it, uh, So there's a legal recognition. I think that was very significant. And also it then turned the politician's mind to the need to provide reparations outside the court system because it's a very laborious, expensive process to go through the court system. And if the state had to defend hundreds and hundreds of cases, it would be very, very expensive. Now, interestingly, though, the Tasmanian government had introduced a reparation model prior to the, this decision. And but straight after this decision, the South Australian government, who did appeal the decision and were unsuccessful in the appeal on most points of law, uh, they said, well, look, we'll, we'll, we'll be looking at bringing in a reparations system, which they did, but unfortunately it took them about eight or nine years before they actually did it. But um, I think it did bring people's minds to the fact that we need to look at uh, non-legal non methods of uh, trying to find a uh, reparation model to, to assist, and also the fact that, yes, the courts will, in some cases, recognise what was done was unlawful. Mm. Well, as you mentioned, Kevin apologised in, in 2008, mm. and I'm sure for a lot of the non-Indigenous population, that apology could seem like a bit of a lid on the past, uh, that injustice is over. How much do you think, as a country, we have actually progressed in our institutional treatment of Indigenous families? Uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, well, um, look, I, you know, I now am a parliamentarian, so I suppose I'm in the system to some degree, but um, there's no doubt governments are more aware of the need to try and ensure that Aboriginal families stay together. Now, the converse of that is that some, in some cases there is a need for a, 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 a child to be removed from their family, whether they're Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal, on the basis of neglect. And that's, to me, that's what it should be the case. If someone is being neglected and there is no other solution, they should be removed. But the difference here with the stolen generations was that they were being removed purely because they were Aboriginal. Whether they were... In the Trevorrow case, it was quite clear that the, um, 
the, the children, including Bruce, were never neglected. And while they lived in relatively uh, rudimentary facilities, uh, the authorities always said it was clean and it was fine and, and they went to school and so forth. So Bruce was obviously removed because he was Aboriginal. Um, so I think we've, we've moved from that, uh, but of course we still have a long way to go. And there is, um, you know, right, saying that someone's racist is a, is a big call, um, but, uh, you know, we, we've had instances uh, like last night on uh, on TV, there was a documentary on the great footballer Adam Goods. Uh, so there is still much to be done uh, in regards to fighting racism and trying to bring about reconciliation and, and justice to historical wrongs. Mm. You're a legal and uh, legal academic, sorry, and a politician. Mm. Those are two careers with a bit of a reputation for being erudite or alienating for a lot of people. Mm. Yet, while factual and informative, your book is also emotionally charged with a strong, empathetic narrative. Mm. Why do you think it's important to cut through the jargon mm. and bring legal and political stories yeah. to the public? Well, that's, and I'm really pleased that you've asked that question because that's part of the motivation behind writing this book. What we don't do very well in Australia, I think, compared to the US, in, in the US there's numerous books that have been written on legal cases uh, that, are, that are beautiful, that are very accessible to the non-legal public and bring these cases to, to a wider audience and bring them alive. And I just don't think we've done that very well in Australia. There's been a couple good examples in regards to the Marbo case, and I just thought... You know, Eva, I could have wrote a legal, uh, a very fine legal uh, text uh, for law students and uh, lawyers, but that would be a very small portion of our population. And uh, I just think to try and get the discussion. And look, whether we need to have a great discussion on this, some people say we don't, but I think we do. And I think our our children and the next generation need to be told this story. And that's why I, that was one of the motivation to try and cut through the heavy legal jargon uh, to present a case that I think is. Uh, hopefully readable. Can you tell us a bit about the uh, the process of writing this book then? Mm. Well, the, the, it was a 10-year process. Uh, so when I first heard the case, you know, in 2007, I was a legal academic at that time working at the University of Western Australian Law School after moving over from Murdoch University. And, of course, as a legal academic, uh, you generally, you know, part of your job is to research and write. So that was fine, but in 2010, I moved over into uh, politics, parliamentary politics, so my, uh, my time, my capacity that I had to, to write this book was, uh, in, in, as far as time uh, was an uh, issue, was considered, considerably reduced, so that made it more difficult. And, the, you know, this case is from South Australia. I live in Western Australia, so there was a jurisdictional issue. And uh, there was over 3,000 pages of trans court transcripts. So basically I had to go through all the transcripts, I had to go through all the court documents, and then I had to interview some of the uh, key players in the story. Uh, unfortunately, Bruce had passed away by then. Um, so that was very uh, time-consuming. And, and I have to be honest and say there were times where I gave up. I, I, well, I didn't give up. I thought of giving up. Thank God I didn't, uh, because it just seemed to be insurmountable. Um, so it was very, very time-consuming. It, it took a long time. Uh, there were very large periods of a hiatus, uh, but I felt an obligation to the people I had interviewed, an obligation to Bruce, and, uh, and also a, a very keen motivation to get this out to the public that uh, made sure that I continue and not um, you know, close the file and, and don't forget about it. 
You mentioned that you read over 3,000 pages of transcripts mm. and interviewed countless people in, mm. uh, in your research for the book over those 10 years. Are there any particular people or moments from the research that have stuck with you? Yeah, look, um, well, I mean, I think reading the transcript itself was just, while it was uh, at times tedious, was also at times very, uh, very um, engaging and uh, there were very significant parts of the of the transcript that I relay in the book. But as far as interviews, I think interviewing the judge, um, when I commenced interviewing him, he, um, as you know, actually both interviews I did with him, he was still a judge. That I found very... Um, illuminating uh, the, the processes that judges go through uh, in their thinking and also I think interviewing Julian Burnside uh, what, you know, a great legal mind and, um, and figure in Australia, uh, that was um, really, really important because Julian Burnside didn't want to take on this case. It was only through the constant uh, pleading uh, of the uh, solicitor in um, Adelaide, Joanna Richardson, who commenced the case, that he finally agreed to, to do the case. And, and I remember when he said to me, you know, the first time I met Bruce, I could see a broken man in front of me. And that's all he really needed to know, that this man was broken. He was able to build a case around that. And the other significant uh, saying was from Joanna Richardson, who's the solicitor who Bruce went to see in Adelaide. They were of the same age. And he said, she said, we are the same age, but he looked at least 10 years older than me. And they were quite significant, I think, in, in, in the interviews that I did. <clears throat> Um, on, on a different note, Tony, um, back to, to politics a little bit. Uh, of course, I can't not mention the, the still fresh election. It's a new chapter for government, federally at least. What changes do you think um, would be good to see uh, from Australian governments in policies around the treatment of Indigenous, indigenous families? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think the government, the, the, and obviously I'm, I'm, in, I'm on the Labor side, but the government's appointment of Ken Wyatt as the Aboriginal Minister, I think, was a, was a great move. He's uh, his cousin or nephew, Ben White, is his counterpart in West Australia. He's a colleague of mine. Uh, I think that was a good move, and I think what Ben, uh, what Ken is trying to do, as far as uh, constitutional recognition and a voice, are really, really important. Obviously, they have to be uh, they have to be uh, advocated uh, parallel to the to the need to try and uh, close the gap. What really needs to be done more than anything, I think, is that we need to try and ensure that Aboriginal children go and stay in school. Uh, in, in, uh, as a local member of parliament in Western Australia, what I can see is that the kids that go to school and, re and remain in school are much better equipped to deal with life and a better chance of having a successful, fulfilling life than those that don't. And to me, that still is the major problem is the uh, is the inability to retain uh, the or improve the attendance rate of Indigenous students at school. Is there anything more you think that could be done beyond an apology for reparations to people mm. suffering experienced or inherited trauma from the stolen yeah. generations? Well, I mean, this is one of the arguments made in regards to the Kevin Rudd apology where uh, Prime Minister Rudd ruled out uh, compensation. Now, people say, well, you know, compensation will never do, ne ne never compensate uh, adequately for the pain and suffering, and that's true. But it provides a symbolic 
a symbolic um, medicinal purpose, if I should say, if I could say, in, in therapeutic. It's a therapeutic process by the government or the state acknowledging there was a wrong and, the, and therefore putting a monetary amount to it. It's just, a, of course, a symbolic matter. Uh, look. If we are working towards a reparation model, uh, where well, we do now a redress model for uh, institutional child abuse, which is needed, uh, there's no reason why that should not also be for the stolen generations. Now, obviously, the 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 age of the stolen generations is, um, of course, of such an extent now that there's not that many necessarily that are... There's not as many now that were, say, 10 years ago around... Uh, whether their family should receive the uh, compensation, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, they, they think, I think there needs to be a reparation model, which is, if anything, symbolic and provides therapeutic uh, healing. Uh, but I think that is important. But the apologies itself was important. But we need to go beyond that and look at how can we set up systems that will ensure that the next generation have a better chance of succeeding in life. And you know, that's where I turn back to uh, education. Because I, I can see uh, if we can put in more funding in education, that in some respect is a reparation uh, uh, situation. I mean, that should happen in any case. But uh, if we can actually ensure that the next generation is um, uh, better equipped, uh, surely that's what everyone wants. Tony, um, before I let you go, is there anything else that you think is important to share about this story or any questions that I might have overlooked during our interview? I I think what's in regards to this book and this story, the Bruce Trevorrow, I I think just what what I would want people to to, uh, take from it is that, yes, this story in many respects is very tragic. It also has has um, a trump uh, a trumpful um, uh, ending in some respects, but unfortunately Bruce dies at 51 years of age. But what I want people to understand: this actually did happen in Australia, <laughs> and 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 it's in and and it's in the living memory of uh, many Australians uh, still. Um, you know, obviously of an elderly nature, but this actually did happen in Australia. Mm. Tony, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, you can grab a copy of A Stolen Life, the Bruce Trevorrow case, at the Good Reading online bookstore, goodreadingmagazine.com, or wherever you get your books. Tony, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, good on you. Thanks ever so much. Thanks ever so much. 